Well, hello, everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and you're listening to another episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. Today's episode is about celebrating duos, the dream team. I couldn't do this show without my fantastic co-host, the one, the only, it's Michael Verratti. Well, if you want to sing out, sing out, Peaches. I'm just so glad we're here together, a duo, and getting to talk about this sensational slice of cult cinema. When you use the word cult classic anymore, I feel like much like the word legendary and other overused words, cult classic is often used in a way that I would find questionable. But in this case, cult classic is the perfect way to describe this week's offering. What is it? Well, it is none other than 1971's Harold and Maude, directed by Hal Ashby, written by Colin Higgins, starring Ruth Gordon, Bud Court, Vivian Pickles, and the music of Cat Stevens. And, you know, Peaches, it is truly a cult classic in the way that you just said, but it's also the kind of movie we don't really get to see made anymore, even though its influence, I feel, is felt everywhere from subversive cinema to the work of someone like Wes Anderson. You know, I think with a lot of our films that we cover at Midnight Mass, one of the things they have in common is how uncommon they are, <laughs> you know? Yes. Maybe that's one of the things that really helps create a cult film is how unique a film it can be. Because when you look at the thousands and thousands of, you know, movies that have been made since the uh, dawn of cinema, when you think about the movies that we're covering on this podcast, often they are in a league of their own. And I think Harold and Maude is definitely one of those. And I'm glad that we got to cover it. And quite frankly, you know, it wasn't even something I had thought about. You know, it's 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 so obviously a cult classic that it wasn't on my list. And I'm, I'm glad that we have made it our celebration for this episode. When thinking about how the movies we cover are in a league of their own, I kind of think about how often on Midnight Mass we discuss otherness in movies, but really, in a macro way, the movies that we're discussing are other. They're the otherness of movies, if that is even like a, a train of thought we could go down. Yeah. Especially in the case of Harold and Maude, which celebrates otherness, it makes sense that this movie gathered the cult fandom that it did and the audience that it did from multiple walks of life. One of the things that we talk about with both of our guests is how, in a lot of ways, Harold is a proto-goth kid, yeah. but also the idea of Maude as a very different kind of presentation for an older female character and how by them both marching to the beat of their own drum, they find symbiosis and synergy with each other because they are the outsiders. They are the other and others are drawn to otherness, dot, 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 et cetera, et cetera. I think our listeners probably know that the way that we build this show is that we start with our interviews. You, well, really, we start with a an off record conversation between Michael and I. Do we want to do this movie? Why are we doing this film? Who can we ask to talk about this film? That's really where it starts. So Michael and I often have conversations that may or may not make it onto the episode because I think sometimes yeah. we forget if we've discussed something or not. Then we usually have upwards of two, sometimes three, rarely, but usually two conversations with guests and do a deeper dive. And then eventually we do this part of it where we kind of string it all together. 
And one thing I don't think we discussed as much as it would be so obvious for us to discuss because we discuss it on every fucking episode is the queerness of Harold and Maude. And I think what I mean by that is we we do talk about it in other ways, the oddity of Harold, the gothness of Harold. But we didn't kind of, I think, talk about the obvious part, which is the taboo nature of their relationship. And like that in and of itself, I was realizing as a young queer who watched this movie could identify with it because Harold is laughed at, you know, is looked at as crazy for wanting to um, embrace a romance with this older woman. And there obviously is a queer uh, connection to that because any queer person can relate. And I was like, did we cover that in the interviews? I'm not sure. I don't think so. But what's interesting, too, is the whole of Harold's construction has a queerness to it because of the things that motivate him. The idea that he has these sort of performative flourishes that put his feelings and his sense of being on display, for better or worse, and how his mother chooses to ignore it or laughs at it or puts it in a box and puts it away. And so Harold doesn't feel like he's being seen. Harold doesn't feel like he's being heard. And so there's a queerness there. And that's something that you have brought up a number of times over the course of the podcast, that this is sort of the larger definition of queer. And the idea that there can be people who um, are straight, but still queer for the way they experience life and live their lives. And I think Harold definitely falls into that space. And Maude does too, in a different way. For sure. Not that our audience wouldn't be probably picking up on all that. And and on a show where we talk so much about how everything that we love is kind of queer in a way, I thought, well, come on, their relationship is queer. And maybe we could save it for a little later in the podcast. But I think one thing that's interesting about the taboo of this film is things I'm called most often online have turned from filthy sodomite degenerate satanist or whatever but by by crazy people to groomer it's groomer you're a groomer you're a groomer it's this obsession with with protecting children which i of course think is a complete deflection and projection right like if you look at who groomers are statistically speaking it's it's not drag queens performing brunch or reading at the fucking library like you know we know what they're doing This is the tactic they use. We know that they represent churches and institutions who've actually protected real groomers, yada, yada, yada. That being said. It's what we used to call back in the day, he who smelt it dealt. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But but I will say that when you're called that, it can be a very jarring experience. And it was a little sort of surprising at first. Now I see that it's just sort of the uh the go-to, you know, the, the 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 thing to say. But this movie in particular, when we think about these sorts of relationships between older women and younger men and how the dichotomy can change, and I even wonder if a movie like this came out today how it would be received. And I even have seen lately a different take on Call Me By Your Name in the short time since it's been released. And so I do think we're living in this really strange time where there's this kind of like paranoia, I guess like satanic panic in the 80s. Like the groomers are all around us. They're hiding in pizza restaurants in D.C. and protecting Hillary Clinton. They're not only grooming children, they're eating them, whatever. Um, But it's just so bizarre. But like what a pure time where we could watch a movie like Harold and Maude and sort of not be 
completely transfixed on whether it was appropriate or not. Well, and it's something we've discussed in the past, and I think that it is indicative of the time that it was made, but also sort of a wider understanding of how to intake cinema. When this film was made, it was implicitly with the understanding that depiction does not equal endorsement. Yes. And I think that we've crossed into a space where people think that if something is woven into a story, if your character is not virtuous from jump uh, or doesn't represent a certain set of ideals from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie, then it is in some way problematic. Whereas from a writing perspective, you are going to want to create characters who grow, who learn, who make mistakes. From a reading perspective, from a viewer perspective, I want to see stories about people who are flawed or who are in situations maybe different than mine, who are in situations that maybe are situations I would not be in, but I can connect to them on a human level on a story level. And it doesn't necessarily mean I would agree to everything that's presented, but I don't have to because they're fucking fictional people. I mean, that's the best part about movies and literature and all of this stuff is that there can be nuance and there can be a gray area. We're reverting to the Hayes Code or something like, you know, you better have a moral compass at the end of the... It's like, guess what? That's not how life is. Anyway, I know we're going on a, a bit of a tangent, but I felt like, well, let's connect it to what is like literally going on today with this groundswell of hatred for the other, the culture war that we're in the middle of is just so fucked up. It's so awful. And that's what it is. It is a culture war. It is about culture and banning drag and legislation against trans people and trans children is hateful and awful. And it's built out of fear. And I think absolutely it's interesting to look at a movie like Harold and Maude, which came out in 1971 and think, Okay, this is interesting. There's a lot of gray area here and there's a lot to chew on. And these characters are flawed and nuanced and wonderful and likable and complicated. And it's one of the reasons we love the movie. It goes back to the notion that a character can be both progressive and reductive at the same time. Absolutely. That's the function of art. Yeah. A lot of us are that. I mean, I, exactly. I see that in myself. We evolve. We change. Our, our opinions change. Our ideas about things change. The language we use changes. You know, things change. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. We loved talking to our two guests about it. Perhaps we should just get into it. Well, it was actually because of our first guest that we even did this movie because uh, this individual is someone that I have known for a really long time. I know him from the world of horror. Uh, and we knew that we wanted to have him on the show. And we kept trying to find a horror movie because that's what his artistic identity is so closely linked with. We kept trying to find the horror movie that made sense for him to come on on Midnight Mass. And then as fate would have it, as synergy would have it, as the universe would have it, just in a sidebar, he mentioned that Harold and Maude was one of his favorite movies. And just like that, it all clicked. And I called Peaches and was like, what about Harold and Maude? And we have... Him to thank, incredible creator, incredible filmmaker, dear friend, it's Chris LaMartina, and we're talking to him right now. I've seen your eyes, and I can see death's disguise hanging on me, hanging on me. Shattered and tossed and worn, too shocking to see. 
Welcome back, listeners. I've known our next guest for longer than probably either of us care to admit. And over that time, I've had the extreme pleasure of watching him go from a filmmaker with undeniable talent and vision to one of the true kings of the modern underground. The creative force behind the celebrated WNUF Halloween special, his love of retro television and bygone formats saw him create one of the modern era's unquestionably unique new cult gems. As a filmmaker, he's also been behind such beloved titles as President's Day, The Call Girl of Cthulhu, What Happens Next May Scare You, and the recent WNUF sequel, The Out There Halloween Megatape. What's more, he currently rocks the stage as the drummer of the monster surf band Beach Creeper, was the co-creator of the horror comic Burial Plots, and it was recently announced that he's joined forces with Grady Hendrix as part of the forthcoming horror history podcast, Super Scary Haunted Homeschool. He's a writer, director, producer, rocker, alleged part-time werewolf, and so much more. It's Chris LaMartina. Chris, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh. If I don't know if you can hear blushing, but I am uh, blushing like crazy <laughs> right now. That was like the sweetest uh, intro I've ever had in my life. Holy hell, brother. <laughs> you are literally blushing. Some of you know that we we record on Zoom so we can actually see. You have the <laughs> rosiest cheeks now. I love it. And I'm probably making it worse, aren't I? Probably, yeah, 100%. But it is true. We've known each other for a long time. We met a long oh my gosh. time ago at a yeah. horror convention far away in Cleveland, Ohio, the Cinema Wasteland. Yes. Shout out to you Wastelanders <laughs> out there. Um, but I would have never guessed when I met you, uh, surrounded by all of that gore paraphernalia and punk rock uh, ephemera, that one of your favorite movies was this very sweet, decidedly not horror film, Harold Mudd. Although it does have a lot of deaths and uh, themes therein, um, but it, it is not one that we align with genre. So when did you first discover Harold Mudd? When, when did the affair begin? I was thinking about this and I saw it when I was 14 and I'm almost positive the reason why I sought it out was because probably like a lot of people, it was that um, that throwaway line that Cameron Diaz says in uh, There's Something About Mary when when they're asking what the fa- what her favorite movie is and she says Harold Mudd and like at the time I, I remember seeing uh, There's Something About Mary with my sister Brooke and she was like, oh that's probably not even a real movie. They probably just like made that up to be at a scene and I was like I, I want to see if it is. So I looked it up and I was like, no, it's like some weird movie from the 70s. So I went to Blockbuster the um, next week because at that point, most of the mom and pop shops were gone in my neighborhood. And somehow Blockbuster had a copy of it. And I remember looking at the artwork and being like, okay, this is gonna either going to be like amazing or awful. I, I remember it was the artwork that's like the um, sort of like cartoonish illustration. I got it home um, and I, I, st- I, I woke up early the next morning. I still wake up super early, probably like before like the sun came up and um, watched it by myself. And I was just in trouble. Like I never, and I knew nothing about it. Like I, I didn't even read the back of the box. I remember every moment being like, where is this story going? Like, like what, like the first scene I was like, oh, did he really just kill himself? Oh, the mom, you know, maybe she wanted him to kill himself. Like, it's like, like, but like, obviously like, I'm like, like watching this in real time, trying to like figure it out. But it's like, I have no concept of what, um, you know, totally what it's going to be until about, you know, obviously as soon as that hits that first joke hits. I think probably the perfect age to see the movie is around that age. It's funny that, that you discovered it through there's something about Mary because somehow that didn't resonate. I was obviously older than you both. And, you know, growing up in the 80s and being in high school in the late 80s, early 90s, I remember sort of discovering Harold and Maude from the same group of people that introduced me to like the Jane's Addiction album when that came out, like when Nine Inch Nails put out Pretty Hate Machine, you know, like it was all part of a culture. And somehow this movie was part of alternative culture in a sense. So very not there's something about Mary, not to say there's anything wrong with jizz headed Mary, but you know. 
think that's what's interesting though it, like with my discovery of it was like you know i grew up even finding like punk rock or like the horror movies i loved it really was feeling like i was in an island until i met other punks or until i met other like horror film fans and there's something about mary like was that sort of weird i did not expect to talk about that that's much <laughs> but was more like but no it's totally interesting though like i think it's noteworthy that it was enough of a pop culture thing that it made its way into that huge hit of a movie when they said that offhand remark i was like well what is that why did that have such prominence in the story like the sort of like the sort of like uh, alternative love story with, with that film so when i found that movie it was also like understanding that there were weird underground movies that exist in the same edgy na nature of like what um maybe edgy is not the word but like you know offbeat nature of like a lot of the horror films i loved or a lot of the bands i was listening to but through the vessel of like a romantic comedy for like or dark comedy for lack of a better word that actually makes sense in the connection actually to there's something about mary and the fact that it is essentially harold and maude is about an unlikely relationship. We should probably get into like, what is their relationship and all of that, but it is obviously clearly an unlikely one and an unexpected one. And I think in the alternative sort of scene, did you grow up in Maryland too? I did, yeah, but Baltimore. So like, if you know Baltimore well, like Catonsville Woodlawn. Okay, well, I grew up in Annapolis. So, yeah. but I was like listening to you. I was like, oh no, he grew up in Baltimore. I can hear yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on. You know, I, is my accent that bad? Come on now, peaches. You said, and I'll quote, <laughs> I brought it home. And then you said something about, I turned it on. And I was like, okay. I, I was like, I know he's in Baltimore, but wow, he grew up oh in my gosh for yeah sure. no it's awful it, i always joke that our accents <laughs> it's make not us sound, awful no they are our, our, our accents make us sound 20 uh iq points lower <laughs> i fought very very hard michael knows this i fought very hard to lose mine when i uh -huh. um went to college and i don't think i have it anymore but the, there are a few words and on is one of them because apparently i say on all the time Point is, I just grew up in the same area a decade or more before you did in the punk scene. Yeah. The going to punk shows at the YMCA. This is where, you know, I learned I learned about music, but I also learned about like what movies did these alternative kids watch? And things like the John Waters stuff and the Rocky Horror stuff, that came to me more naturally. But things like Harold and Maud. <laughs> see, I just said Maud. Okay. But you know what I mean? Like it, it is uh now I can't stop. It's also infectious. Talking to you is gonna bring it out in me. Um but things like Harold and Maude, they were like these sort of midnight movies that were kind of passed to you. You know, they, mm -hmm. they were kind of like an insider thing. Like goth culture existed for short, 10,000%. But there wasn't a movie like this that really spoke to less of the uh, flamboyant ethos of the goth culture and more of the yes. internal struggle of feeling alone and not yeah. being not being understood by your parents and and maybe even you know I grew up in an upper middle class environment you know Annapolis you know while it's not the same as Palo Alto but that idea of like well you have everything I mean everything's being handed to you you have a silver spoon in your mouth why the fuck are you so miserable right like you were you know we were miserable I related to it I'm wondering did you relate to his misery I was a really depressed I guess like early teenager right so like when I first started making movies I mean I was making stuff all by myself like a lot of stop motion stuff things with action figures that eventually I got some friends to make these weird little like like gory horror films and I mean maybe that's the connection to Harold and Maude that I loved that maybe got me excited at first the gory suicide scenes but i i don't want to say i mean like i really struggled with depression pretty seriously when i was when i was young i mean i remember making really really dark depressing short films i remember showing them to my, like my parents because like i like showing my parents all this stuff and they were like we don't want to see any more films like that 
Like he, like yeah. you need to make comedies. And, I, and that was like a really fucking weird moment. And I've never actually talked about this stuff before, but like, um, uh, I just remember like, um, like I never went to therapy till much later in life. And I'm, I'm glad I did what I did, but it was like that loneliness and the idea of like, maybe I'm just a fucking weirdo and maybe everyone else is normal. Like that really related to me with, with, with the Harold character big, big, mm-hmm. big time. Well, I'm wondering, and we're already sort of speaking to this, but as Peaches was talking and, and she mentioned the accessibility and the larger cult embrace of something like Rocky Horror or John Waters' works. When you look at a character like Frankenfurter or Divine, there's an extreme presentation of otherness. Mm-hmm. I think that we're drawn towards that because it is Utra. It's sort of like a step farther than the world we live in, and so we kind of aspire to that level of weirdness. But I'm wondering if the draw to Harold is that he's an other that's more like us. He isn't mm-hmm. the over-the-top presentation of Frank. He isn't divine. These are these are almost caricatures that we love because they're caricatures. But the relatability of Harold, I think, speaks to he is the goth kid in a community of none. He, yeah. he is the punk kid in a community of none. And I'm wondering if that's it, if that's like, yes, he made these gore scenes and things, but was that maybe the relatability, do you think? Because he's more us than us being frank, if that makes sense. No, 100%. And I think what's interesting about, you know, Bud Court's Herald is the fact that it's truly immaturity, right? Like the whole, the, the arc of the movie that essentially like, you know, he loves the idea of um like when his mom thinks he's dead and that makes him feel good. Being missed makes him feel good, but that's a really immature understanding of love, right? Like you got to fucking tell people you love them and you've got to, you know, like even his idea of like romanticizing death. Well, why romanticize death if you're not fucking living, right? And I think at that time in my life, I hadn't understood that, but that's why it hit so hard for me because I watched this character that like ultimately realizes like, let's, let's make music, you know, let's just go out and love and like, it's going to be scary and we're going to take risks, but like fucking A, that's what being a human being is about um, and making those choices. So I think that's why it was super relatable. And also, you know, we go to the movies and we want protagonists that we see ourselves in for many reasons, but one of which is because we want to believe human beings can change. Some movies over the course of my life, I'm like, eh, it doesn't hit as hard as it did when I was like 17. This one always still hits as hard, you know? I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. And then I think when I moved to San Francisco, I probably went to the, the they used to show it at the Red Vic movie house, which no longer exists. And that's in The Hate. And it was a calendar repertory house. And they showed Harold and Maude a lot. You know, I think because it was a Bay Area film, it was very perfectly San Franciscan in many ways uh-huh. in, ter- in terms of its eccentricities. And so I saw it there, but I hadn't seen it in probably 20 something oh, years. Shit. Whoa. Yeah. So it's been a while. I mean, like, that's so crazy to realize, like, it's probably been that long. So I rewatched it, you know, for the podcast. I think it hit me harder watching Mm -hmm. it now uh, with everything that's going on in the world. There were things that I thought about that I hadn't ever thought about before, like how young he looks for a 16 year old, you know, like he probably looks like what 16 year olds look like. Like I have a niece who's turning 16 and to me, she's still such a baby. But whenever we see 16 year olds, you know, we're used to like the John Hughes thing where it's, you know, 25 year old Molly Ringwald or whatever, you know, playing (laughs) 16. So it's like, he looks so young. Like it's weird to see him driving a car, right? Yeah. Because, you know, he, he's in that hearse. The other thing I just think is hilarious is I've forgotten about all the driving stuff. Oh, yeah. There's so much crazy <laughs> driving in this movie. But I digress. So we've talked a bit about Harold. I think we know why we identify with Harold in many ways. And I think you're completely right. Like, 
he is that character that we get to go on a journey with. And essentially, the other thing that I took away from this film was Dan Savage created a whole campaign for young queer people, but it could really be any young people. All young people go through a hard time, you know, if you're normal. <laughs> if you're yeah. normal, yeah. you're going to have that Don Wiener experience at some point, right? And so Dan Savage's It Gets Better campaign, I'm like, oh my God, Harold and Maude is kind of that in a it way. Is. So It Gets Better is essentially old queer people in a campaign telling young baby queer people it gets better. That's what it is, right? Yeah. And I'm like, that's what Harold and Maude is. For me, it was always about finding my tribe, right? Like figuring out like, yeah. like-minded weirdos and outcasts and understanding like what I wanted out of life and getting there. I think that Harold and Maude is interesting because it's, you know, it's a romance, but I think thematically, obviously, and probably very obviously, they both represent the idea of like, you know, death and life, right? Thematically, I think I don't think there's a movie that's more visually impactful on theme than this film. Um, like the scene when they're going out of the funeral and there's just a marching parade going down the street. Like that's such a perfect visual representation of theme or even like the little moments like um, Glaucus, like the the um, the older um, ice sculptor, like the idea that we can't hold on to things. He's fucking doing ice sculptures. They fucking melt. Yeah. Like they don't stay around forever. Right. Right. So like things like that are, are just like really brilliant, like thematic elements. In talking about the duality of the characters, one of the things that I'm bringing up in both interviews, because I was struck during my rewatch this time around, was the movie is, of course, very much centered around Harold and Maude. That's their names are the fucking title of the film. But Harold's mother is a really, really dynamic character in this movie. And I think that her, oh, yeah. her performance is really amazing, Vivian Pickles, who plays the mom, because I think that she exists in the space between. And, you know, we can sit and talk about Harold and Maude and in and, and the connection and the life and death of it all. But I'm wondering, because this movie means so much to you, what's your read on her? I'd love to know, and this is sort of a weird thing, but of all the times I've seen it, I want to know what her relationship with her husband was like. Because she talked, there's that scene early on in the movie where she says, oh, you know, Harold's dad was just floating down the river or whatever on that some vacation. And I'm like, it sounds like Harold's dad was actually probably someone that was more sort of like out there. And maybe she, that's why she was attracted to him or maybe that, that birthed a child that could have the same level of curiosity it's funny i do think a lot of the characters that represent authority in the film are cartoonish and i think the mom character you know she's funny like and i, I don't think she's as cardboard as like the fucking uncle like the military uncle or like the priest or the therapist which side note man the fact that he dresses up the exact same way as the therapist is like the funniest goddamn thing like just <laughs> subtle like who the fuck does that anyway uh, i like to imagine like he go he like he somehow like spies on the guy so he knows what he's wearing that day I think the mom character, I think, um, you know, I, deep down, I think she wants the best for her kid. But I think ultimately, sometimes when you when you look at, you know, what we do to our, our um, family, friends, like sometimes what we think is the best for them is not the best for them. And I think that's the, the danger of, of, of her as, as a as a piece of that story. Right. And before you jump in, Peaches, one thing I did want to say that I think is interesting because you mentioned Molly Ringwald and sort of the teen mode of movies. The thing that I do think is significant about her is that unlike parental figures in so many movies that center on an adolescent, especially an adolescent who's railing against society, she's never fully, she is a cartoon, but I don't think she's ever presented in a way that she's the enemy. I think that that's really, really interesting yeah. because so many movies the like that center on a teen, the parents are either clueless or they're out of it, or they just are like an authority figure to be the villain. And she's none of those things. Yeah. Okay, so she's baffling, re-watching it. Something that occurred to me, especially with her character, but, but also the uncle, also the therapist, is these are these people 
through the eyes of a 16-year-old who's depressed. Mm. These are the characterizations that a 16-year-old, you know, when she's swimming in the pool next to his body floating, kind of rolls her eyes and throws (laughs) her head back. I mean, he doesn't hate his mother, but he also feels like she doesn't care about him. She's not paying attention. The way the therapist talks, the extreme... The uncle is a cartoon character, but very much in the way a 16-year-old would see this overly masculine, you know, militaristic person. They're like these, I don't know, when you're that age, you think you know everything. And it's not until later in life that we realize like, oh, my impression of the world, my ideas about who people were, none of them were nuanced. My ideas were that people were cartoon characters. You know, you're good or you're bad. You suck or you don't, you know. And in a way, I think those adults, everyone but Maud, they're all being presented the way a 16-year-old would be seeing the world. Maybe that's why it resonates with me. I'm someone who hates nuance. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a hot take I'd love to discuss. So I used to um, teach screenwriting as an adjunct for a couple of years. And then um, COVID happened and I didn't want to do it anymore. (laughs) But um, I always showed Harold and Maude to my screenwriting students, specifically to talk about theme, right? And when I was watching with my class, this one woman in the class said to me, well, isn't Maude just kind of like the manic pixie dream girl? And I was like, whoa, dude, you're making me feel bad about this movie that I love. (laughs) But I I had this moment where I was like, I actually didn't say this to this person. I was like, oh, my God, this moment of introspection, like maybe that's the case. And then I I, I really struggle with that still. And I'm curious to hear um, uh, both of your takes, because like I I think she represents theme, but I think so does Harold. And I don't think necessarily that like falls into that that trope of, of that especially since she would be a uh, manic pixie dream elder, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I guess I get that read on the surface. And I think that there's something really interesting about that. And for sure, like if someone wanted to go forth and write a paper about Maude as manic pixie dream girl, they could. Ramona Flowers in Scott Pilgrim versus the world is someone that we think of as like definitive manic pixie dream girl, like in presentation. Ramona in that movie her big life struggle is she had some bad boyfriends. Like, not to diminish the thing, but, like, her mania and her joie de vivre comes from, like, just shit that we all experience, but then, like, kind of commodified and characterized through Scott's lens. He, like, it makes her seem larger than life, the comic book girl in his mind. Whereas I think the mania of Maude is born out of real life tragedy. Totally. My understanding of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope, which is a newer idea as far as a trope goes, or, you know, newer in the in the history of cinema, is that they aren't 80. And that part of what I think is interesting, especially when, you know, the other uh, friends of the podcast know that I have a neighbor, actually, when we finish recording, Next, I will go to the grocery store and shop for Sand, who is 85 years old, my downstairs neighbor, you know, because uh, I do her grocery shopping, my partner and I. And Sand reminds me of Maud. And I would say that when you get to an age where, you know, you've lived a certain amount of life, you're allowed to be manic. And it's not necessarily a trope. You're allowed to be dreamy and have fun and sort of, in a sense... The alternative isn't fun. Right. We all know older people. And there, there's a sort of a why in the road, I think, when you get to be a certain age. Mm. And um, I, I would say that, like, the older people I know who are still fun and living life, it's a choice. You're making a choice to to sort of, you know, be that. Like, I, I, I how should I, I? I'm trying to articulate that, like, if you're a manic pixie dream girl and you're 80, 
you're not really a manic pixie dream girl. Right. Does that make sense? <laughs> I get you. Yeah, you're totally. embracing a spirit of living. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm making sense. Like, is Auntie Mame a manic pixie dream girl? That's an interesting comparison. I've always and did Ruth Gordon play Auntie Mame as well? Is that no? It was, that was uh, Rosalind Russell. Oh my God! Yeah, the similarities are quite there. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I think Auntie Mame and Maud to me are just fantastic people who want to live. You yeah. know, is that not the message of both of them? Live, live, live. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm glad I don't feel as bad about it, but this being my favorite movie, like I did in that moment in my screenwriting class, <laughs> I was like, oh no. <laughs> and that's why we had you here on Midnight Mass to reaffirm your love <laughs> for Harold Mod. Now, we've been digging into some very, very serious things. And obviously, there's a lot of seriousness in this movie. And I think there's a lot of really fun stuff too. And one of the things that makes this movie so iconic is the Cat Stevens music. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you yourself are in a band, you have composed music. What's your relationship with the music in this movie like? I have never seen a movie that hit me harder initially with the music. Like, I was like, I need to go find who this guy is and buy his records, right? There's movies I saw as younger where I was like, oh, I like that title song. Hell yeah, the Dickies, Killer Clowns. Gotta fucking, like, you know, get a copy of that. Um, But, like, this is something that from start to finish, the music is so intertwined with the story. And just, like, perfect. Like, I can't imagine that movie with, like, Elton John was apparently talked to initially with that movie. I don't think it would be as strong of a film with, with his stuff. But I was going to say um, I became a huge Cat Stevens fan because of this film. I also think that's just an interesting, I mean, Cat Stevens is just, or he's not Cat Stevens anymore, but what an interesting life journey there, like giving up your music for decades at the height of your career. Like that's, that's fucking wild. And it ties back to like, just like this whole idea of like, you know, living the life you want to live. Yeah. Which came first, the graduate or? Um... I think the graduate came first, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because there is that sort of thing of of hiring these sort of musicians and the graduates also about an older woman and a younger man, um, although <laughs> a, a, a bit different. But the way Simon and Garfunkel sort of color that movie, you know, in many ways, I feel like you, you don't want to ever think of them as separate and you don't want to think of Cat Stevens and Harold and Maude as separate. And it's like any of us who make movies, we're all filmmakers yeah. here. And we know that that there's that process where you um, are or you're choosing an actor, or you're choosing a c- composer, or you're you know whatever making these choices that we all make as directors. And then ten years later, you go, oh my god, I can't even fucking imagine if it was that other thing I almost did because the person brings so much to the project, and filmmaking is so collaborative, yeah. and the unity of all these elements come together to make this thing that we know and love. So it is fascinating. So a couple of things there I would say. Um, one, it's interesting to bring up The Graduate because I, I think The Graduate, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, most of the music they have in that film still feels very melancholy, whereas like there's a couple, you know, songs that Cat Stevens has in, in Harold and Maude, but most of them are full of, they're joyful songs. Um, like yes. really, truly, I mean, like literally, um, and I mean, to talk to my connection to, to the movie, um, you know, um, I think he wrote two original songs in the movie and one of them was If You Want to Sing Out. Um, if You Want to Sing Out, Sing Out. And um, that's a terrible read on that. But um, <laughs> that is the song that after I kissed Melissa at my wedding, that's what we, what we walked back down the aisle to um, because that's like, you know, ah. it, it seemed appropriate because we've shared so much art and um, movies and all kinds of like music stuff together. Like it made sense because that that just what felt like our song. But I was going to say to go back to the director thing, you know, as someone who has scored a lot of my films, it's almost wild to me that like 
I wonder how that film was edited. I, be, I believe, actually, I was listening to the commentary in preparation for this. I believe at some point Hal Ashby or, had talked to the editors and was like, just put whatever Cat Stevens stuff as temp tracks for now and then we'll lock it down. So like, it's very possible they were editing to those songs that ultimately ended up in the movie. And I think about that so much, like um, when I edit my horror films, like I never edited temp tracks. I was always like, no, I'm going to figure out whatever the um, the cues are. And either sometimes I would, I would score my own stuff 10 minutes by 10 minutes of an edited movie and figure that out in, in tandem. Or I would write songs that I would cut the scenes to preemptively. Or I'd find bands that, I, that my friends were with that I would do that. And like, man, to any editors listening or directors, like having that simpatico like that is fucking everything. Like if a chord switch, uh, chord change hits on like a cut or like, or like, you know, a certain pan ends up with a guitar slide, like it just packs so much punch. And I think Harold and Maude, it's very clear this music is just as part of the film as like the cinematography is or the, the script. Well, it's interesting that you mention them cutting the movie to just random Cat Stevens records. My understanding doing some research on this is that Cat Stevens had been on deck to compose an original score and then just due to, I don't know, touring or something to do with his his label, they were running out of time and Hal Ashby had been using songs of his as placeholders. And so they then renegotiated and Cat Stevens kind of talked to him about, well, use this here and here's a couple original songs. Yeah. Um, but even imagine if the movie had gone the way that they had planned, we wouldn't have had all of this music because a good chunk of the songs that aren't written specifically this i think come from t for the tillerman that album Mm -hmm, definitely it's just so interesting a happy accident can make all all the difference the official soundtrack release i think initially was only released in japan and then finally like there was a demand obviously over the decades it's become a cult phenomenon i think it wasn't even released till like 2007 or something pretty wild wow like in my head the music in this film is as important to the overall film as like something like wicker man i can't think of that movie and not fucking think of the score Right. Whereas yeah. like there's plenty of movies that like I can fucking hum, you know, a bar of it, of some of, of a score from it. You know, so, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> plenty um, of horror movies fall in that bank. <laughs> yeah. And plenty don't. I mean, that's what yeah. that's what's so, that's what's so interesting is like how many of just forgettable music. But then when when one nails it, I mean, yeah. it really makes an indelible punch in your brain. Um, so, Chris. You mentioned um, using this song at your wedding Mm -hmm. to Melissa. So I have to ask, were you so influenced and impressed by this film or inspired by this film or affected by this movie that Melissa is, in fact, 80-something years old? (laughs) She's older than me, but not not that much Uh, older than me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but she's always she's always been open about. I mean, it's our age difference is not especially significant. Um, okay. No, but I, mean, I didn't this, think. Yeah, I didn't think she was eighty. Something <laughs> <years ago. laughs> What's, so, I know, maybe, maybe my response made that more awkward. <laughs> it wasn't the response I thought you were going to have. <laughs> it's funny though, because as Peaches started talking, I'm like, I know exactly where this is about. To go. Oh my god! I, didn't, I had no idea. I really, I really was wondering, like, what is he? What, 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 what are they? What is she leading up to? You know? Yeah. Um, god. Oh my god. Well, just basically, are you attracted to older women? That's oh my God, yes, absolutely. Well, there you yeah, go. Yeah. Then, then I got my answer. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. as I tell my wife, I like all kinds of women, but uh, you know, it's like, oh my God, yes. well, you got me doing this now. I'm going to shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you're um, blushing again. I know. We'll keep talking, and I'll, I'll get redder and redder. Um, uh, but no, but I mean, I and that's the funny thing is, like, um, like the movie really resonated with me, and like, um, obviously, the, like the song at our wedding, but like. I re- it is my favorite movie in the sense that like I you know I, I bought a 16 millimeter film print of it uh, because oh, awesome. because I just like I I loved it so much and then um th- to bring it back to punk rock for a second you know a lot of times you get back patches of like.
like a, your favorite band or like a political belief. And I literally have a heroin mod backpatch on my hoodie because that's that's <laughs> uh, sort that's of like good. that's that's what I want to be uh, associated with. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Any songs that you've written? Inspired um, by Harold and Maude and your band no, or anything? I don't think no? so. No, I mean, I'm trying to think of like over the, like just like the, the, the early acoustic stuff I did early, but no, not really. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I don't know that it would aesthetically work with Beach Creeper, though they do go to the ocean at one point. So <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about the seagulls, those glorious Oh my birds. God. Yeah. <laughs> that whole like weird dream sequence where, um, you know, she falls through the uh, wood thing. Yeah. It's so bizarre and disturbing when she falls through the um like when, when they're talking to the uncle that apparently um so one one of my birthday gifts a year a couple years back was melissa got me the novelization the con um higgins ah. and that that sequence is longer in the novelization and apparently the movie was like three hours initially and they just cut it down that's why i'm always uh. bummed out that the criterion is is fairly slim um it has mm-hmm. a commentary and a couple of interviews i mean for understand it's not a dream sequence it's like so the same apparatus that Harold uses to fake his um, drowning in the pool, it's like this oxygen thing. He gives that to Maud, and when she falls down that shaft or, or, or whatever it is, she's wearing that oxygen apparatus, and that's how they get away. she gets away down the, you know, the was a reservoir or dam or whatever the hell it is, but yeah. Right, right. It's just so goofy. I mean, like, I, I, I'm glad they cut it from three hours to 90 minutes because I actually think it would have lost a lot of its magic. There have been stage adaptations of this or like a Harold and Maude musical. Do you know anything about any of those? I know there's it's been adapted for the stage. I didn't know about a musical, but I would. I'm curious. Do they use the Cat Stevens songs? Is what I'm curious about. I like feel like you'd have to, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I feel like a musical, you'd still want to like sing plot points, and none of those songs do that. Although, God, could you imagine marrying like plot point music to Cat Stevens? It would probably feel like so uneven. <laughs> oh man, the thing I'm learning about these movies turned musical is that I'm not necessarily a, a fan, <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, and I want to be like. And what I don't like, Beetlejuice, I went and saw it. And as a fan of the movie Beetlejuice, I just love Beetlejuice so much. And then the musical is so musically. It's so like, it's so, it's, there's nothing spooky in the music. There's mm. no, there's no Elfman-esque moment. There's nothing spooky. There's no nod to anything spooky. Yeah. It's just, it might as well be Mean Girls or whatever the other musical is. And they all sound the same to me. So if you did Harold Amod and you did did it that way, I would hate it. You know, it would yeah. have to, there would have to be a Cat Stevens nod. However, I did go see Back to the Future, the musical on the West End, and I fucking loved it. Why? Because they took the score from the movie and incorporated it into the whole show. All the musical stuff is either in 50s-style doo-wop or 80s-style rock and roll or new wave or whatever. It is perfect. It's exactly what you want. Yeah. So if they do Harold and Maude, please don't make it musically. (laughs) If that makes sense. You know what I mean? I agree. So annoying. (laughs) Peaches Christ endorses the Back to the Future musical, and that's I do. the Huey Lewis and the News. I think I've talked about it like five times on the podcast. You have. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, as we're wrapping up, a question I like to ask all of our guests. You rented this movie from Blockbuster. You didn't even read the back of it. You had that much confidence you took it home. But from that time watching it then to now, you've incorporated music from the film into your wedding. You have the novelization. This is a movie you rewatch every year. You had a crisis while teaching at school about your feelings on this film. So clearly you've been walking with Harold and Maude for many, many years. In that time, has your relationship with the movie changed, if at all? I don't know if my relationship has changed in the sense that my feelings about it haven't changed 
but I appreciate it a lot more. The older I get, I feel like I really appreciate Maud as a character to find the best part about things, right? I think as we get older, it's really easy to say, this is a big, lonely, depressing fucking world. Everything sucks. Let's all kill ourselves. Like Harold romanticizes, but really it takes true courage. It takes really strong conviction to say, fuck it. Yeah, shit is fucked up, but like, I'm going to make the best of it. And I think that's the lesson the movie says, go out there and live your fucking life. What better message is there? And so many of the movies that we do, well, Anti-Mame, for example, but so many of the movies that we do on the Midnight Mass podcast have that message. And Harold and Maude, I think, is the classic cult movie of like, there aren't a lot of movies like it. You know, it really isn't a league of its own. And uh, and that's one of the things that we love about it so much. Um, and Chris, uh, you brought us this movie. It's it's definitely one of those movies that has been on our list for, uh, well, it has to be on any cult movie podcasts list because it's Harold and Maude. But we, we uh, were motivated to do it because of your love for it. So thank you so much yes, for appreciate coming it. On. Thank you all so much. It was really, really awesome to talk about it. I feel like I never get the opportunity to talk about movies like that. Usually I'm talking about decapitations or like, you know, media conglomerates. So, <laughs> Well, and with decapitations and media conglomerates, in mind uh what are you working on right now that you can tell us about um okay well obviously i just um we just wrapped that like uh 15 cities tour of the wnf sequel out there halloween megatape and we currently we are actually prepping to shoot a new movie in late march early april but i can't announce the title yet although if you follow me on instagram you could probably figure out what the title is we got a little bit of a budget uh but again i can't talk about that yet because there's probably gonna be a pr push eventually sure, um, sure. but i'm doing that what else writing a couple things one uh may maybe involving someone very near and dear to your your heart michael <laughs> ah. it's you michael <laughs> <laughs> um, but hopefully we get to make that thing we're working on in a couple years and then um working on a couple other random things we, we just did a show a pitch for uh two tv shows so one for a horror tv show and then one for um um horror cartoon pilot so yeah so stand busy and if you you know if you want to follow me finally on like instagram or, or Twitter, or um, buy a copy of the sequel at uh, wnuf.bigcartel.com. Wonderful. Well, okay, hun. It's <laughs> been <on>. wonderful. <laughs> Next time I come to Maryland, we'll get together. We'll go down to the ocean, okay? Oh, my God, I would love that, for sure. <laughs> All right. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. That was our fantastic interview with the one and only Chris LaMartina. Am I in Charm City right now? <laughs> We're going down to the ocean, hun. As a brief sidebar that will be of probably minuscule interest to our listeners, I was thinking about when uh, I was last in Baltimore with you, and we went and had crab pizza with mink. That's right. Okay, so that's how our meal was. And it was across from the Creative Alliance. That was where where we were doing a show. We were doing All About Evil. And there was a pizza restaurant like across the street. And they were known for their crab pizza, which was basically pizza with Old Bay seasoning and lump jumbo lump blue crab meat on top. And it was delicious. Not to completely deviate from Harold and Maude, but speaking of cults, I think we briefly need to address the cult of Old Bay seasoning because, Peaches, did you know that there are people who don't even know what it is? Meanwhile, it's one of my, I put it on everything. I put it on popcorn. I love it. It is very a Baltimore thing, but I think if you live in certain parts of the world, it's more prevalent than others. So I have it shipped to me, although Whole Foods 
did start carrying it a few years ago. They don't always have it, but um, for the longest time in California, like you, I couldn't get it in a grocery store. I, I still don't think like Safeway or, you know, like a regular grocery store has it. So growing up, it was something that, you know, we just, you know, you have it namely on crabs. It's a seasoning for crabs. And if you grow up in Maryland, crab picking and eating is tradition. It's part of our culture. But Old Bay then is used in all sorts of things. And in Maryland, you can buy chips with Old Bay on it. Restaurants serve French fries with it. Um, it, it can be put on anything. Crab Imperial, um, other sorts of seafoods, fish often are served with Old Bay. It, and I didn't realize what a regional thing it was until I went to school in Pennsylvania and nobody knew what it was. Now I think it's evolved where it's popular enough that some of our listeners probably know what we're talking about. And I bet yeah. some of them have no idea. And if you don't, you got to try Old Bay. And, you know, you should go to Maryland and, and have Maryland seafood. And it, it is fabulous. I will say this, though. My brother, this really pissed him off. You know, he's like a triathlete and does Ironman. And, you know, he's gay and stuff. And um, he was wearing like, well, you know, those like bicycle jerseys that are really tight and like spandexy. Yeah, they call them kits. Okay, he was wearing an Old Bay kit. Like, it had, like, Maryland flag on the shorts and had, like, the Old Bay logo on the front. And I said, oh, they they spelled gay wrong. <laughs> because I just love... So, I want to do a parody shirt, which I would wear, of Old Gay, but with the, with the Old Bay logo. I mean, I think it's hilarious. My brother, he didn't think it was as funny as I did. Yeah, speaking of Old Gays, let's talk about Ruth yeah. Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> from discovering spices to discovering spicy new ways to approach life. That's right. Um, how about that, Peaches? You and I have talked to our guests about how they found this movie. When did you first see Harold and Maude? I don't actually remember perfectly, but I, I remember the experience of seeing it at the Redvik movie house on Haight Street in San Francisco. And maybe I'd seen it in college, which is true. I don't remember. But I remember the experience of going to the Red Vic movie house more than once to see Harold and Maude, which was screened there. It was a repertory cinema that was in the upper Haight, which if you're familiar with San Francisco, even if you're not, you've probably heard of the Haight-Ashbury district. That's where the hippies all gathered during the Summer of Love. That's where Charles Manson got his start at that same time. It's really where the hippie movement blew up, was at the corner of Hate in Ashbury in San Francisco, right next to Golden Gate Park. And there was this really cool old co-op movie house, which is so San Franciscan and so hippie, right? And um, you may not know this, but Sam Sharkey was uh, one of the later co-op members, you know? Oh, no, I remember, because yeah. when we met, Sam was programming the room there. Yes, exactly. So that was the very end of the Red Vic movie house, sadly. It's no longer with us. But, you know, Harold and Maude, it wasn't just a cult classic here. It was like a local, celebrated, legendary, historic classic film because of its Bay Area roots. And let's face it, the tone of it and the, the values that it presents are very Bay Area, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I saw it at the Red Vic. I, I saw it at the Red Vic a number of times and it would always sell out and it was always a, a big thing. And I know that Bud Court came more than once, you know, to screenings, which I never got to attend one with Bud Court, but I know that he would come and, and you know, the audience would freak out. So yeah, that's what I remember. How about you? I first found Harold Maude because of Cat Stevens, to be honest. Ah, uh, I didn't know when you I was, knew him. Well, yeah, he he directly was like, you should watch this <laughs> he movie. He popped in the VHS uh, and was like... Yeah, he did. He just came over one thing day. I did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, when I was in college, I went to Kent State University. And for folks who know, Kent State, of course, throughout uh, the Vietnam era, had some very significant tragic moments, but also became very known uh, for being a counterculture school. And so when you're there, no matter what era you're there, they still really celebrate the hippie era, the hippie era that was, of course, born in Haight-Ashbury and made its way to rural Ohio. So a lot of us going to school there, even in the time that we did, still listen to a lot of classic rock. And I had just gone through a breakup. And rather than listen to like Dashboard Confessional, I was like being very dramatic. And I went to the record store in Kent and I was like, I need something that speaks to me. And the guy's like, you should get this Cat Stevens record. And then I became obsessed with Cat Stevens for a period of time. And that's how I found Harold Mod because the songs from the movie were very prominent on a couple of his albums, most uh, specifically T for the Tillerman. And I remember that someone I was in the film society with at Kent said to me, well, if you're going to sit and listen to his stuff, you probably should go see this film. And so I rented it at the local video store. And the rest, as they say, is Midnight Mass history. I think that's the way we discover so many of these films. And I know for our next guest, there was a similar discovery and obsession. This is one of those guests who we really could have had on for so many different movies that we have celebrated. They share many of the same obsessions with Michael and I, and I discovered them through following their fantastic Instagram account, Vintage Annals Archive, um, which I'm guessing many of our listeners probably are already aware of. He has a big following over on Instagram where he celebrates all the sort of stuff. In fact, I just saw him post a big thing on Ruth Gordon, probably partly motivated by us. Um, Actually, I know it is because he said that, the description. Um, (laughs) But he's here to talk to us about one of his obsessions. Of course, it's Harold and Maude. So without further ado, it's Rich Wexler. You can do what you want The opportunities are And if you find a new way You can do it today You can make it all true And you can make it undo You see Ah, it's easy Ah, you only need to know Okay, everybody, our next guest is a real treat. Um, I discovered him through his fantastic Instagram account. My neighbor Sond introduced me to. Many of you have heard me talk about Sond over the years. His account is the Vintage Annals Archive Instagram, which is about 12 years old, and he runs the account, and it's become very, very popular. And if you don't already follow it, I highly recommend it. He's obviously an archivist. He's also a photographer, a documentary photographer, um, whose photos are incredible. And I, I really love his story. I love his attention to preserving the culture that we all love and enjoy. And without further ado, he's here today to talk to us about about his love of Harold and Maude. It's Richard Wexler. Yay. Wow, thank you so much for that. Of course. And Richard, do you prefer yes. to go by, I noticed you refer to yourself as Rich, but of, often it's Richard in print. I've been going by Richie. Ah, Richie, Richie. okay. So, well, there you go. Okay, yeah. so if we're allowed to call you Richie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's dive in, Richie. This is a, a cult classic that is known to be one of the most maybe important cult movies, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, its significance, its uniqueness. And so let's start at the beginning. How did you first discover Harold and Maude? And when did you fall in love with it? I wish I could tell you exactly who recommended it. I found out about it 
like way too late in a certain sense. I think I was 25 and I had been gone to like video stores that had all the artsy stuff. I just, I, it, I just missed it. But once I watched it, it, it just like, it felt like it was home. It felt like in certain movies, I, I feel like I'll watch again because I feel like I'm entering that as, as almost visiting someone's like world or house. It felt like home. I mean, I was a big Cat Stevens fan and just the whole thing blew me away. And it's, it's weird how when I first thought about watching it, how normal it seemed to me because I just got it. But really, having done some research, it's a shock that it exists. I mean, it, it's great that it does, but, it, you know, I was imagining the pitch of this, and it's like, okay, got an 80-year-old woman, 79-year-old woman, three-quarters, 20-year-old boy, great, okay, uh, and, you know, selling this. And then it's like, and one of them is committing suicide the whole time, the other one is going to commit suicide. One was in the Holocaust. Um, like, like, it just, it just, you know, and the director, yes, they are going to smoke a lot of marijuana during the entire production. <laughs> um, yeah, when you boil it down to the elevator pitch, it's like, how the hell did this get made? And after it's all done, we're, we're going to pre, we're going to assume that Bud Court's going to move in with Groucho Marx. What do you think? <laughs> I think that we have many decades of strange, dark comedies that follow this, that you're right, though. Harold and Maude led sort of them all in, in the way that Harold is sort of a prototypical, like, hipster goth kid, right? You know, like, we recognize this now, but when this movie came out, this kind of leading man in film didn't exist at all. And I think what's interesting about Harold specifically, I mean, every character in this movie is dynamic, even the supporting cast, but Harold as a lead is so contrary to what we had up until that point. And I think that part of the draw for me, and I would be interested to get your take on this if this was a draw for you, is because he's such an outsider. He loves kind of a celebration of the morose and the morbid, which obviously is what Midnight Mass in some ways is all yeah. about. <laughs> but it's sort of through his exploration of death, he's still trying to find his place in life it's hard to find any really any other character that is is like that i mean you didn't have any kind of from my understanding like any goth type character you know they talk about in the production how pale he was they used the paleness and they made him less pale through the movie but apparently um robert evans complained at one point he's like if this kid doesn't get more color in his face we're, we're getting him out of the film <laughs> yeah that's hilarious it's a very non-traditional role I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know the other people that were up for the part? No. I know that Elton John was one that was up for the role, which is a very bizarre, different movie for sure. But I don't know about others. Well, Elton John's also up for the music. Ah. Um, John Rubinstein, Rubinstein, he was like a theater actor. I think he was in a production of Pippin, if I'm not mistaken, years ago. Richard Dreyfuss, Bob Balaban, did some of And apparently Bud Court, when he finally had his audition, he just told how I should be that he was going to be Harold and that was it. He, like, <laughs> he said, I'm Harold and they essentially picked him. One of the reasons it rings so true, especially in a time where this kind of character, we weren't allowed to put uh, this kind of a character on TV or in a movie. But we know that these sorts of dark people have existed throughout time, that there are many of us who are fascinated by death, who are, uh, you know, uh, morbid and have have eccentric um, fascinations, you know. And I think, like Michael said, this podcast, probably not just the two of us or the three of us, have some of those things in common, but also our listeners. You know, there was a time where this sort of darkness was unspoken. You couldn't even speak about it because it freaked people out so much. You know, now if you think about a goth person driving a hearse or, well, you know, hanging out at funerals or whatever, you'd be like, yeah, okay. But then this was just considered so beyond the pale and 
probably Bud in some ways related to Harold deeply. And, and, and I think it comes through in sort of the authenticity of the movie and some of these performances that we love so much, we love to say, oh, actors are actors. They're nothing like these characters. Well, I'm here to tell you as someone who performs a lot. Well, guess what? Some of us are like the characters we perform as, you know? <laughs> well, apparently there's a lot of theater people. So there was a certain, when they made the film, they kind of just went with things and had some improvisation. I don't know which death scene. I think after the fire, he looks into the camera and he does like a fourth wall break. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yes. It was all improvised, apparently. Uh, and then um, the scene where he's when I when I researched this, somebody called it the wooden vagina that is in Maud's train house, and he, he improvised putting his head through, almost representing giving re being reborn. Uh-huh. He was fully into this part. He comes from theater as well. So. Yeah. Well, he was a protege of Robert Altman. And I guess prior to accepting this role, he actually went to Robert Altman and asked him what he thought, whether he should take this. Because Altman had previously kind of advised him against taking a role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because he didn't want to get typecast. And Altman was like, if you play Harold, you are probably going to be typecast. But that draw to the character, like Budcourt was like, whatever, I'm going to take it anyway. Yeah, Budcourt, obviously, hugely uh, impactful part of what makes this movie so special before moving on to some of this incredible trivia that you've brought us and in, 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 in some of the factuals. I think we need to acknowledge the magic that is Ruth Gordon. Ruth Gordon first came into our lives in a movie called Rosemary's Baby. And in that movie, I just wanted more Ruth Gordon. I mean, to this day, the stuff I remember most from Rosemary's Baby is her, you know, and, and her reactions to things. And then she shows up as Maud. What are your feelings on Ruth as Maud? Well, I mean, I think she's fucking amazing. If her bio wasn't a thousand pages, I've read it five <laughs> times already. Right. Um, and the interesting thing is when they wanted her for the part, Bob Evans didn't want her because he just saw, seen her in Rosemary's Baby. He's like, no, she, how can she do both? Right. Um, there's women in my life that I've known that I've kind of had, cru- you know, mod crushes on because of her. One is my my friend Jan's mother reminds me so much of his character. And, you know, it's not going to go in that level. She's so alive. Apparently, like, she was 75 or 76 when she shot, and she had more energy than most of the cast. I fell in love with her mostly through um, My Bodyguard. The 80s movie? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. She was the mother of the guy who ran the space and kept getting in trouble. And Yes. You know. I forgot about that movie. I wish I knew more about her work before that. Uh, my Bodyguard. I forgot about that movie. I probably haven't seen it since the 80s. I did not realize until this moment that that was Ruth Gordon. And I'm like, <laughs> I think I might need to go back and watch My Bodyguard because I probably discovered My Bodyguard way before Rosemary's Baby or Harold and Maude. It was like one of those late night cable kind of movies. As a kid who was bullied, you know, that movie yeah. actually, there's a really sweet, non-toxic male affection that's present presented in that film that's quite lovely. Oh my God, I have to go back and watch that. I didn't realize that. That's a funny aside. What's the villain's name, Matt? I can't, I, again, my name names are not coming to me today, but Matt... Um, Matt Dillon? You know, he played the same bully in like five movies and that was one of them. <laughs> the Little Darlings and The Outsiders. Yeah, and he could bully me any day of the week. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> 
obviously, in talking about Harold and Maude, you have to talk about Harold and Maude, and we have. We've, we've um, extolled, you know, Bud Court's performance. We are praising Ruth Gordon, justly so. But I feel, as a fan of this movie, we would be remiss if we moved on to other things without talking about sort of the third primary cast member of this film, who I think is fucking fabulous, is Vivian Pickles as Harold's mom, because her performance in this movie, like, she's over his shit, but she's also fine with it at the same time. Like, her kid does all of these sort of, like, theatrical death scenes in front of her, and she doesn't bat an eye, and there's something sort of fierce about that. Because I guess in some ways... I mean, I know Peaches, you can relate, but that's like our moms, you know, like we do crazy shit and they just like, all right. And I think that she does not get talked about enough when people talk about this movie because the conversation always focuses on the two leads. But she's phenomenal. Well, they found her, my understanding, when they went to England, they were trying to cast Maude as someone who was British or European. And I think they came in touch with her through that process and then found her and booked her. But the weird thing is the reviews were so horrible if if you've... Read any of the reviews. I mean, one of the one of my favorite review lines was "Funny as a burning orphanage." That was, I think, that was all it said. And, and apparently, Life Magazine wrote to them and said, "We're going to do you a favor and not review it." Wow. Oh wow. The letter that Ruth Gordon writes to Canby, I forget his name. He was famous uh, film reviewer. And she writes this whole email to him, that like letter to him, just kind of telling him to like kindly fuck off. <laughs> In every review, even the bad ones, they all liked her. They didn't like Harold. They didn't. They didn't understand any of it. But they liked her, which I just found interesting because I, I don't know what that speaks to. What do you What do you all think that might speak? Oh, to? they liked her, Vivian Pickles. They That's loved they her, but they hate everything else and everybody else. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, her performance is very strong and it's really good, and she's also maybe one of the more uh, of the three of them, maybe one of the more relatable characters, especially for for folks when this movie came out. So it was, I think, maybe Harold and Maude because they were so outside what was considered conventional or even acceptable you know for for people to to of their age of their basically they're challenging all these sort of ideas of of what it means to be these people she was the one they could relate to however if it was a movie that was the way they describe it being twisted if it was a movie that wasn't twisted we wouldn't be talking about it today it's that catch-22 of the cult movie which we deal with all the time on this podcast which is guess what these movies many of them most of them i would say are misunderstood they do not find their audience immediately i would say as a cult movie this is one of those that casts a very wide net like there are certain ways you can stereotype certain fans and 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 people may not like me saying this but there is there there are things like you know when you meet a great john waters fan you know kind of who they are and what they like and where they come from you meet a rocky horror fan someone who dedicates their life to rocky horror we know those dorks i'm one of those dorks you know (laughs) harold and maude I have met Harold and Maude fans from every cross-section, you know, people you would not expect to like this movie. Yeah. It really speaks to people in a specific way. That's It makes it a unique cult film. So I don't know. I, I would say it's something like that. Now, I know, Richie, being the archivist you are, you've done some digging, maybe more than than our typical guest. And so you have... Too much. <laughs> but let's let's get into yeah. it. I'm excited. Let's, let's okay. hear what you've got. Before I do that, I do want to spell out in terms of characters, the other two really big characters in this, I would say, is Cat Stevens' music. I mean, if if you really pay attention to it, it's it's almost like, I, th- I thought about this, it's almost like narrating the movie. Because apparently, you know, um, 
Hal had picked his music before the movie was made, and it all fits so perfect, but apparently a lot of it was random. But if you really listen to it and, and, and see where they kind of made, made choices and were putting things, it's narrowing the story with, through the music. And then Hal Ashby, you know, he's such a big part of this. I mean, his father committed suicide, which I think is probably a big piece of why the suicide is, is central. It's also a big piece of why not only this film, but in other films, there's always a missing father. Yeah. Right, right, right. Anyway, um, so factoids. Okay. Some yes. of these are going to be fun. These are going to be quick. There's too many of them really to, to not make them quick. Um, Suzanne Summers was supposed to be in the cemetery scene. Oh. The original, <laughs> original cut was three hours long. And they cut half of it, and this is what you see. And apparently, like, Maud is a lot of fun for an hour and a half, but people hated Maud for three hours. Ah, <laughs> wow. Okay. Too much positivity, I guess. Um, <laughs> John Apatow named his, his daughter Maud for based on the character. Tessa Thompson production is called Viva Maud for the movie. Ruth Gordon couldn't drive, which is oh. why she's – and I think they just went with that. She did not know how to drive at all. Yeah, I read that um, in the scene where she's – steals i guess borrows because harold's there the hearse they tow the, the the hearse right because she literally couldn't drive it it was too big of a car one thing that's interesting is you hear uh, in some interviews with bud he talks about how like he wanted to be closer to her whatever they did in the film you can tell they were very close as, as actors but apparently bud's father another father who passed away bud's father passed away a few months later and then they actually became friends so it's just again it's another weird kind of odd aspect to this yes the first line that she says to harold is she refers to herself as being gone in a week so she really tells him you know you think about all his suicides but i mean all his fake suicides she commits real suicide yeah you don't think about that really until you dig deeper because it's almost just like commonplace for her and I think it's important that you point out that that's her first line because for as many times as I've seen this movie, something I often forget is that it really only elapses over the course of about a week. Exactly a week. And it feels like it's longer because their yeah. relationship just becomes so deep over the course of those days. But I guess like how much can you fit into a week? A lot when you're stealing cars and trees. So well, that's also why there's probably a lot of montages. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a week. We got to throw them out all these scenes together. Apparently, Emilio Estevich tried to remake it with Shelley Morrison and Will and Grace. I'm not sure who that is, but apparently it was noted what? that Emilio Estevich tried to make a remake of this movie some no. point in the 90s, I believe. Oh, my God. It's only, there's only one reference to it, and it doesn't go further, but it said it's Shelley Morrison, who I don't, I didn't really watch Will and Grace. I don't um, know who that is either, yeah, but I, I know either. who Emilio Estevez is. Was he a director? Did he make other movies? He directed yeah, that yeah. movie Bobby that was like the huge ensemble piece all about the the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Like, oh, it was very big on the festival circuit for a minute. For those of you who aren't of, of a certain age, um, Emilio Estevez, it, I guess he was considered part of the Brat Pack in the 80s, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, and and I always remember him from, um, oh, what's Maximum that? The Stephen Overdrive? King movie that he directed. <laughs> yes, Maximum Overdrive. Oh, that's a yes, great yes, movie. Yes. That's a fucking great movie. Um, but so we're going to get to the sunshine, the hippie, the one of the, you know, the dates, sunshine yes. also was in the musical, which only had apparently four shows and then went and it was done, although it's been revived. But when it first came out four times and they were like, fuck this thing, she wound up playing that mod part years later. Um, oh, interesting. And, and in that room, apparently that there was another film made there. Like, I forget who the director was, a famous director. And it was so it like fucked up the house so much that they didn't, they wouldn't do anything there for another like 10 years. But apparently the Rolling Stones played in the room of the scene where he, you know, with the, with the fake knife. And apparently the Butler was the actual Butler of the house. Wow. It is interesting when you see the size of the estate that Harold and his mom live in, they, they never quite explain 
like who they are. And actually, Peaches, I did want to say when you said that Harold's mom is probably the most relatable character to audiences up to that point. I think she's relatable in that Hollywood way. And, you know, you mentioned John Waters, and I think about how John Waters said that Divine always liked to go see movies about rich people. Well, she's kind of a quintessentially Hollywood character. She's sort of, in a way, kind of anti-mame in this movie. She's got the big house, the fabulous outfits. She's sort of droll in her thing. It just so happens that her, her child, instead of, you know, whatever his name was, anti-mame, it's... Right, right, like right. Pugsley you know, Adams, you know. This, <laughs> you're, you're talking about that actually reminds me of something. This is a bit of weird personal trivia um, that I had forgotten about until this very moment. So my partner, Nihat, he's just started his own business. And, you know, if you want to check that out, it's nistcollection.com, N-I-S-T collection. Anyways, years ago, he was running a restaurant and they would also do catering. And so he was down in the peninsula and he starts sending me pictures of the house where he's doing this party and it's the house. So oh he, God. you know, he was there catering for this fancy party and it's undeniably the house, oh, the house. you know, from Harold Lamont. <laughs> and I just thought that was so cool. And, and he got to do a party there and it looks the same as you can imagine, you know? So yes, I think you're right. I think there is a part of us. I mean, even to this day, I'm fascinated by the fact that we as movie going audiences will accept that someone in their twenties, you know, who has a coffee shop job can live in a gorgeous loft in Manhattan. Like what the <laughs> fuck, you know, like, so we all like, we don't want to yeah. live. We don't want to see reality, you know, represented in movies. Cause it's so bleak. So they moved production from LA to San Francisco because they wanted to have more nature, but also um, Hal Ashby was really didn't want to hear anything from anybody who worked above him. Cause they just gave him a bunch, a bunch of shit. Unfortunately. Um, original poster had no nothing but their names because no, I don't think I figure out how to put a photo in, into this thing, <laughs> like what they could have done. There's an original kissing scene that was during the sex scene that was only in the preview. Doesn't exist in the film. I thought that was interesting. Apparently, Maud is a, a, a mixture of three women from Colin Higgins who wrote the story, which was going to be his, his senior thesis uh, from film school, and it was only going to be 20 minutes. Um, but it was a mixture of his grandmother, a bohemian woman from his youth in Australia, and an older woman he met uh, who settled in America who was a concentration camp survivor, but mm -hmm. had a sunny outlook. And also it talks about how his closeness with his grandmother as a kid when it kind of formed this idea. I love that, that it's based in fact in some way, because I, I do think that even outside of sort of the romance that happens later in the movie, we so rarely in movies get movies about intergenerational friendship. Yeah. And I'm really happy to be here on this podcast because I feel like you guys can make these connections all the time. And that's why it was really, you know, really interesting to do this. You can't take out anyone's life. You can't take away Ruth Gordon's life. You can't take, uh, you know, anybody who's involved, like their life inspired this movie. Right. One of the things that I thought was interesting is a lot of people consider Maude a the original manic pixie girl oh but yet how interesting she is you know like also 79 or whatever 75 in real life but wow. i love that idea that she's like this sparkly kind of female character to just sadly inspire the other characters um all right so mod set two apparently directly referenced auschwitz which i didn't know um bud court nearly drowned in the pool scene oh really yeah that could have been a horrible on the way of twilight zone or something it's the worst fucking story yeah. and when you rewatch it with that with that knowledge it's just it's too much actually yeah yeah i don't know how they continued that's a podcast for another day okay so there's an interesting connection obviously between the graduate and this movie i mean it's really a similar story if you think about it an older woman mm -hmm. younger guy 
I mean, he's a bit of a depressive in the beginning. And apparently, like, the reason they, that they wanted Cat Stevens to make the music is they wanted to treat it like Simon Garfunkel treated The Graduate. And there was a big thing about, like, well, why was, why was like, this movie such a taboo, yet The Graduate wasn't? It, it really was about another 30 years of life, really. It was the difference in age between Mrs. Robinson and Mott. But isn't it also funny because The Graduate, of course, was so well-received. Well, I mean, it was and it wasn't. Roger Ebert hated The Graduate when it came out. And the only thing that he amended later on was that he said that he thought, uh, in retrospect, maybe he was too hard on the Simon and Garfunkel songs. But people loved that movie by and large. But I think that the Cat Stevens music was one of the only things that was really originally well-received about this film. Is that true? Or um, I don't know. I mean, not, not much was well-received. In the <laughs> and apparently Roger Ebert gave this one and a half stars. I rewatched the film twice and I rewatched the film with commentary and um, there's a lot more to it than that. Apparently the guy who made the Jaguar into a hearse also made the Batmobile. Oh, that tracks. There's a lot of controversy around Bud Court not making really a lot of any money in this film. Like him personally or just like in the world? Only a few thousand dollars through this film. Like he, he, wow. He, he didn't make a lot. I mean, I have to research deeper, but... There's no mention exactly, but he was not well taken care of. Um, one of the things I don't know if people noticed, it's that the adults that are referenced in different ways. Apparently, all the like father figures all have these photos of their heroes in the scene. So when you see the one, um, the mother talking to him about her uncle was MacArthur's right-hand man, and then you just see the shot of him with his fake arm. But there's, you know, he's got a picture of like Nixon apparently up. The psych scene, the same kind of thing. And I love in the, in the, in the, when the psychiatrist scenes they're both wearing the same outfits and i didn't pick that up for years watching it until ah, someone told me but they're in identical right. outfits and there's like three sessions in the last one he's laying down with his arms almost like a funeral like he's dead yeah he's upside down on the couch Up, well like upside down in how you would sit on a psychiatrist's couch and, and how you would sit if you were dead right <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I found most interesting, I'm a big Jim Henson fan. I'm sure you will. You yes, of form. course. I can see Jim Henson looking at you over your shoulder. Yeah, he is. For those of you who can't see Richie because you're listening to a podcast, we can see Richie. And in the room he's doing the podcast in, I see Jim Henson on the wall watching Richie. He's also my birthday twin, which is the best ah, okay. I could have chosen. So one thing he did apparently in, in um, Dark Crystal is they spent time and they dug artifacts into the ground that would have been there. Oh. So apparently in mods like train house, all the stuff in there, like all the drawers were full of stuff just so it, it felt real. Wow. That they hired a guy named Boom Boom to do the fireworks for the one of the end scenes who was also missing four fingers. Oh. <laughs> if you think about the balance of this, I mean, everything is perfectly balanced. I'm a Libra. It's a Libra film. You know, you have an old character who's full of life, who's kind of heading towards death. You have a young character who's full of death, who's going towards life. And one, in one way they describe Maude as a, more of a, a spirit freer than a free spirit. And there's so many scenes that show this balance. I think by making the characters so generationally different, maybe as an older person who remembers what it was like to be Harold's age, I've now come to the point where I relate more to Maud. And part of what I think is so interesting about their journey and what they're showing in this film is that life is less important as you get older. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways, you know, or that it gets lighter in some ways, because all those things that you think are the end of the world when you're 20 or 19, yeah. you realize when you're older, you're like, that's all 
bullshit. I think then it's not life that's less important. It's the minutia. Like yeah. life, life is the thing you celebrate. That's true. You're right. I don't mean life. I mean the things that we prioritize in life when we're young. Because we see her in the movie, you know, just sort of flippantly like, who cares? You know, I don't have a license. I never cared to get one or, you know, that that those sort of things. It's like, when you prescribe to the by the book, you're living your life by someone else's standards. And I think that's sort of what Maud represents. It's just the difference between foresight and hindsight. Foresight something we kind of convince ourselves that we have, but we don't because you can't plan on life. But here's someone who's lived life and is able to look back and say exactly what Peach has said. You're sweating the small stuff or you're, you're making mountains out of molehills when you should just, in fact, be enjoying what you've got. And sometimes it takes that lived experience to be able to realize that because in youth, you think you have all the time. And when you don't have all the time, you realize how great it could have been and can be. And in something I read, it talks about the reason she commits suicide is she knows as her brain kind of goes worse, she's going to start re-experiencing. I mean, she went through the Holocaust. I mean, she was a, she must have been a child in the Holocaust, but she had such... She saw so much darkness that she knows she doesn't want to spend the next 20 years thinking about not being able to fight it off, being old, not being able to move, not being able, you know, and I think that's an interesting thing when you think about why she commits suicide. Yeah, yeah for sure. And now, uh, Richie, uh, I just glanced over and realizing uh, we are running out of time. Okay. Um, and we did run over, <laughs> but that's the sign of a great Midnight Mass conversation because I had no idea we had been talking this long. I don't want to let you go, though, until we bring up this screening that you oh, were okay. telling me about. Okay. So there was a movie theater near me, whatever. Uh, they try to be a little art scene. They would it would be a dollar movie. It would be like two dollar movies. It was you get, you get popcorn, soda, and they would just essentially bus in old people. They must have connections to some old age homes. So you know, Howard and Maude is playing at like one o'clock on a Wednesday. This is about ten or twelve years ago, and I'm like, I have to go. And I like wore like a velvet jacket. Like I wanted to dress up. It was a whole thing. It was mostly the confu the the mixture of people being upset, confused, angry. And just hearing, like, old people banter. And, oh, what are they doing? What, they're dating? I don't understand. Like, you hear it in stereo, like, all around. Um, <laughs> and then the, my favorite part, and the one part of this is really, it was very exciting for me. And the funniest part is during the sex scene, the three women that were in front of us, who were not happy most of the time and making comments, stormed out of the theater. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I do love a walkout, I have to say. That's an immersive experience. You are immersively experiencing Harold and Maude. We usually ask folks how they can find you. So while you're telling uh, our listeners where they can keep up with your stuff, could you just uh, further explain your site? So we have a website where we try to recreate more content on there. So it's vintagedanielsarchive.com. Uh, um and what about the podcast? Because oh right, shit, Vintage Animals Archive. There's a, a definitely an overlap between yes. what yeah. people who listen to this show are interested in. They're definitely going to go want to go check out your Instagram and follow you. They're going to want to check out the podcast. And Richie, we cannot thank you enough for coming on the Midnight Mass podcast. <laughs> if you both want to be on our podcast, I would love nothing more to talk to you about what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, we'd love it. So all right, thanks. Thank again. you. And that was our interview with Rich Wexler. You know, Peaches, I really, really loved Rich's passion. You know, he came with trivia, armed with trivia, that he had really researched out and, and thoughtfully brought to us. And I, I, you can tell 
that this is a passion for him. Obviously, through his site and through his Instagram, he is doing the work to make sure that these things are chronicled and cataloged for future generations. And even just the bits of information he brought on Harold and Maude present uh, an example of of the sampling of, of things he's preserving through his work. Yeah, and this is a guy who shares these obsessions with us and wants to do the deep, deep dive. And so I love that he brought uh, some of what he does on his website and uh, through his social media to our podcast, you know, by by really bringing research that was well-researched. It was deeper than we usually go with the trivia and the, the, the tidbits. So really, really enjoyed talking with Rich. And if you don't follow his stuff, you should definitely check it out. It's really entertaining, especially the Instagram account. You know, I'm constantly on my own stories. I'm constantly sharing things that he posts. So uh, I think you'll like it. Yeah, no, I'm a real big fan of what Rich does on his site. And I think that film preservation is so important. I think that we often take for granted in the digital era that everything is going to be available to us. But the reality is a lot of it isn't. So if not for people like Rich, we may have lost things. So I'm so glad that he came here today to not only share his love of Harold and Maude, but also showcases work because we need to highlight work like that as film fans, as cult devotees. And it's just really, it's really special. Speaking of not losing things, all of you that support our Patreon are really helping us keep Midnight Mass alive and functioning. Um, It was really embarrassing, Michael. I was talking to someone who's a listener of our podcast, someone I really respect, and they love listening to the podcast. I said something to them like, um, that podcast, I just just love it. I love doing it. I love talking about the movies. I love the fans that we have. I, I really love doing it. I mean, but it's a labor of love. I mean, Lord knows we don't make it. And he goes, yeah, yeah, we know. Because if you listen to Midnight Mass, we know. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess it's maybe something I bring up a lot. I don't know. But guess what? I'm bringing it up again. Any little bit of support can help us. You're the help we need to keep the podcast essentially paid for so that we could keep putting it out. I did get the message, though. It's like, huh, okay, maybe I need to come up with a new angle for the Patreon. But hey, you're supporting the arts. The angle is, at least weekly, Peaches and I put out a mini-mass episode, sometimes with special guests, sometimes with just us, talking about movies we may not address here on the show, talking about extra material that goes beyond what you hear in the episode. We just put one out about print. It's true. We put one out about Prince. We recently had one where uh, our friend Ben Bauer stated the case of why Katie Holmes should be a cult icon. I mean, this is the kind of material, all this above and beyond. It's a good tie into the Vintage Annals archive. I mean, Vintage Annals archive, because... By the way, listeners, the fact that it took this long in the episode... (laughs) That's... shows that Peaches was was really displaying incredible restraint. Restraint has been... (laughs) at play. The point is we go deeper on our Patreon. And so a lot of the even nerdier, weirder, crazier stuff. We also go a lot more current. I was just telling Michael about a movie I saw, an Argentinian horror film I watched on Shudder called Terrified. I'll probably go post about that. And then people on our Patreon tell me what to watch. And so it very much is a community of cult weirdness that gets a little deeper than the regular podcast. So check it out. Sometimes our Patreon subscribers motivate us to do movies that we weren't 
initially thinking about. I mean, recently a discussion came up where we learned that the folks on Patreon would really, really, really like it if Peaches and I did an episode all about a specific movie about little creatures with uh, a violent tendency. And that's all I'll say. (laughs) That's right. And if you too are simultaneously listening to this podcast while planning your next extravagant homage to Herschel Gordon Lewis in the form of some gory masterpiece of mess that your mother will walk into and ignore, well, then you too might be one of the children of the popcorn now. (laughs) (laughs) Do we think Harold knows who Herschel Gordon Lewis is? For sure. Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>